You're listening to the McKinsey Podcast, featuring wide-ranging conversations on the issues that matter in business and management. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the McKinsey Podcast. I'm Diane Brady. You are in for a treat today. I'm certainly excited to speak with our guest, Joanna Barsh, who is Director Emeritus at McKinsey and someone for whom the label Leadership Guru is justified. (laughs) Now, I first met Joanna a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, somewhere in Midtown, I believe, Joanna. Um, You were generating buzz for a book called How Remarkable Women Lead. We had a terrific conversation there. We've had many since, and I look forward to one today. She led the launch of Centered Leadership at McKinsey, which spawned a book and programs that have since been adopted worldwide, and she continues to help governments and businesses grow. Leadership is the topic today and many others. Joanna, welcome. Thank you. I, if you heard a guffaw, that was me when you said guru. Uh, I mean, it, may, it makes me think of Yoda. As I age, I'm turning greener and smaller. Very appropriate to the time. Well, remind us what centered leadership is all about. In a nutshell, centered leadership is mastery of your thoughts, your feelings, and your actions in pursuit of profound change that you're hoping to enact in the organization or community in which you lead. What that means in simple English is to be at your best more of the time, to feel that you're both grounded, but able to get above the fray. And in, I guess, clinical terms, it means that you're operating from strength. You have a positive framing of the situation. You feel connected to the people around you. You're fully engaged, both your right and your left brain, and you're energized. And that energy is contagious to others. You started this program, if I recall correctly, for women. And and what was it that we needed that we weren't necessarily displaying or, or internalizing from a leadership point of view? It goes way back to, uh, myself, (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh, in the sense that I thought, uh, as a senior partner at McKinsey and company that I was missing something very, very big and I couldn't see what it was and nobody was pointing it out to me. And so I went on a personal journey to interview senior women, top leaders from around the world who, who had what I didn't have. And so I started from that place of assuming that I was missing something. And if I found it, I could share it with everybody because it would be of value to others as well. And by that time, that journey was halfway over in 2007 or 8, and uh, about 100 women interviewed and in the can, so to speak, uh, I realized that I wasn't missing anything. They were unbelievable. Uh, I was in love with every one of them, and there was this river of strength that was flowing through all of the women and over to me. In other words, we're not missing anything. We can unlock doors to uh, find more of our own potential hidden away within ourselves. And we can choose to share that or not. It's our choice. By the way, men have the same situation as women. It's not that we are all that different. 
Yeah, that's true. There was a lot of demand, wasn't there? Wasn't the men sort of oh. lobbying to get in? Yeah, I, I spent the first five years trying to understand how women and men are different, which sounds ludicrous in 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> of course, we're different. <laughs> yeah, I can never decide whether I'm surprised at how far women have come or, or disappointed that they haven't uh, done better, or I should say we. Where do you stand on that? I am both hopeful and quite ready to charge, to lead the charge, to get more, to get it faster, to help more women. I'm hopeful because if you look at the data, we have come very far over the last 20, 30 years. The we primarily being white women, the women of color uh, less so, but still making gains. And when you look at today, we're in a perilous position with COVID affecting how many women can afford to stay in the workplace and still take care of their kids. We're also at a point in time where we have to recognize that the world has not been fair, the world of business that is, and the world in large has not been fair to Black women and other women of color. So we have to do something and do it big and broad, and it starts at the top with leaders. There does seem to be this dearth of leadership or this angst over leadership right now. What do you see going on? We are in the midst of social unrest, the likes of which in this country, the U.S., we haven't seen since the 60s. We have economic uncertainty up the wazoo, and we have half the country on one side of politics and the other half on on the other and we're divided in so many fundamental ways that it's uh, it's a very, very difficult and challenging time. Leaders, let's say 10 years ago, just had to figure out how to get their companies to grow more profits and shareholder returns and pay off the shareholders and get a lot of money and what next boat do they want to buy? And on and on. It was pretty simple compared to today, even though it was crazy with globalization and so many other issues that leaders had to cope with. Today, leaders are drowning in the level of complexity that they face. And the only way through it is to let go of the transactional nature that we were all taught in business school and to adopt, if you would, sounds hokey, but a more humanist uh, set of practices to be a leader, to deal with the emotions that are swirling around us, the fear, the grief, the anger, the outrage, the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, the humiliation. (laughs) I could go on. I'm bumming myself out. (laughs) When you, you go into the corporations around this country and around the world, Are you seeing a lot of changes? Are you seeing a wider swath of leaders? I am, but that could be because the corporations that call me up want something else. They want centered leadership or more of it than perhaps they've found on their own. And so I am seeing leaders who are much more self-aware than I'd seen in the past, meaning they're more curious about what they're feeling and what they're sensing and observing in the organization. I'm also seeing people who are open to new ways of doing things. The latest research that I've been doing on Black and Latinx men and women at work, 
in-line jobs has suggested that we need a radical reset in the organization at this point to enable more of the talent to rise. And the leaders that I get to talk to are curious about it, but also willing to try things that maybe they just wouldn't have given a second thought to a couple of years ago. What what do you think is actually going to be different if I'm talking to you this time next year? The only thing that will change senior leadership, unless they themselves change, which is also a possibility, and we could talk about that next, is that they become self-aware of what's driving them and self-aware of how their behavior affects others. Let's just take a simple example. You're trying to hire somebody and you're pressured to fill that job very quickly. So you hire the person who has all of the criteria of the people who used to have that job. You end up with a white guy and he's probably fabulous, but the criteria in that job is changing because the world is changing and the future of the job probably needs a broader set of criteria. And if you were to use a broader set of criteria, you wouldn't be so stuck hiring in somebody who looks like the person who was just in the job. You might hire somebody who doesn't look anything like who's on that team, but who has genuine leadership skills, who has strategic ability to look around the corner, who has uh, a set of interpersonal skills that you didn't think you needed 10 years ago, but you need them now. So in that case, you have a much broader talent pool to look at, and you're going to diversify. You don't think it's human instinct. I've always wondered about mini-me syndrome, the kind of recognize excellence in a form that vaguely resembles yourself. You know, that's a real, it's a real thing, a familiarity bias. You know, you hire in who you are and it could have worked in a system that's stable Mm -hmm. where you're not feeling the pressures uh, buffeting the company, the pressures buffeting the the social system of the country and the pressures that your own employees are going to bring, bring down your throat. So the one thing that's really changing, if you can close your eyes to the news probably can't, but you could wish you could, you can't close your eyes to the fact that your employees want to be heard and are going to push harder today than they would have done 10, 15 years ago. And as they push, it's going to make it a lot less pleasant if you have not developed the capability to hear them. Has your thinking on centered leadership itself evolved as you've seen it in practice? It has. It has. It's funny. You know, the first five or so years that I uh, was working with centered leadership, I worried, would it really help people? And I saw that it was helping a lot of people. It was helping people discover their strengths, learn how to shift from a moment of upset to a moment of opportunity. It was helping people make important connections at work to create sponsors for themselves and others. It was helping people take on new risk and it was helping people gain clarity around where they get their energy from and where it goes and how to better manage them. So the people who adopted it were more resilient. They seemed more fulfilled, more energized, and they were getting promoted, which was a a cool outcome. But there were a couple of things that just did not sit right as the world evolved. The first 
that I was stuck on was this notion of passion. Back in 2004, everybody was talking about passion. Do uh, what you you're passionate about. <laughs> follow your heart. I even wrote it. I wrote it in the book. I'm, I, I feel ashamed every time I think about it. Eating bonbons while binging on Netflix doesn't count. <laughs> what does that even mean? Follow your heart. I like candy. <laughs> so I should eat it till I'm like 150 pounds heavier than I am today. Hey, of course. You get paid. Right. <laughs> so I've learned, and um, it was a young woman, a millennial who taught me. I remember her well. She was because uh, she dyed her hair purple, and she she had a tattoo. And so I was curious about the question that she posed to me because she seemed like such a strongly expressive individual. And she said, "What do you do if you don't have passion? What does that mean for you at work?" And you know, I didn't know what to tell her. The pat answer was, "Well, you know, keep looking for it. <laughs> Just sooner or later, right, right. it'll it'll find you, or you'll find it." And then I heard it more and more and more. And so I do think that there are a set of circumstances at work and and in the community at large where you can be stripped of whatever passion you have. It's called low grade depression. But what do you do if you don't have passion? So that was one issue that I started to grapple with. A second one, and this one I thank COVID for it, is what do you do when you're just filled with negative emotions and everybody's telling you to put a smile on your face, particularly if you're on a Zoom call all day long, right. and look positive, God damn it. I'm not feeling positive. I'm feeling upset and ashamed and angry and and just powerless all at the same time. So what do I do with that? Should we express that on our Zoom calls? <laughs> Actually, you should. There's one company, um, I think uh, I read it in a McKinsey article or perhaps a Wall Street Journal article that said, you know, Start your Zoom calls with not just, hey, how are you doing? In which case, the only right answer is fine or great. But to say, how are you really, really doing today? And then shut up and listen. <laughs> to If the person says, uh, you know, not good. You got to just give them the space and stop yourself from right. a tendency that we all have. It's human. To go, oh, it'll get better, or <laughs> you know, you should be happy. The day is sunny. You know, we do this to each other all the time. We shame each other into positivity. It still seems like a difficult thing for a leader to admit to anxiety, sadness. That's right, and you know, from everybody from Brené Brown to Barack Obama, that when leaders show vulnerability, they mm -hmm. gain power. People want to follow a leader who opens up a little bit. It's an element of trust that if you're afraid to do it, that's good. It means that you're at least self-aware that you're afraid. And then you can go into an introspection around what is it that's making you afraid and how can you work around that, welcoming in the fear, allowing it to settle. It will pass through you because you'll recognize that it's limiting you. If you want to connect, if you want to get more out of your people, then you've got to show some vulnerability. And it is one of the most powerful tools that a leader can use. So you mentioned passion and the fact that we may not need passion. Is there a substitute for it? I mean, what keeps us connected? What keeps our companies vibrant and growing or whatever success looks like in the next iteration? if we don't have people who are engaged and passionate about what they're doing? 
So we all tend to work in black and white. So if you don't have passion, that must mean that you're in a, you're an automatic or perhaps you're an automaton robotic mm -hmm. person. That's not which, true at all. Which could happen soon <laughs> enough, but let's just uh, that's a conversation for another day. So putting that aside, <laughs> you might have passion for gardening or for playing volleyball after work. You, it's not that you're a passionless person. It's that you don't have passion for looking at spreadsheets all day long or sitting in 12 hours of Zoom calls mm -hmm. at the moment. And that's okay. It's normal. You do have to find a different way to recover your energy because the lack of passion also means lack of energy. Mm. And think about passion as what is it that you value? What is it that just fills you up with positive energy? And can you do a little bit more of that at work? So it doesn't necessarily have to be a task. It could be an interaction with a colleague. I'm having a blast talking to you right now. It's Thank filling you. me with energy. I feel passionate <laughs> about centered leadership and I like your questions. So I'm having a moment, right? From here, I might go and have another Zoom call where, where something else is happening and I don't feel it anymore. That is okay. First, recognize that it's normal. And then think about skill building. Think about contributions that you're making to others, think about what you're grateful for and appreciative of, of yourself, not just of other people. And pretty soon you're going to be finding that there is some more energy creeping back into your workday. You have to focus on it for it to come in. You have to invite it in, in other words. It doesn't typically creep up on you from behind. Yeah, Finding the work that you love may take a lifetime to do. And I think the pressure we put on our children to find it, you know, at 18 or at 22 or at 26 is just wrong. It takes a long time for some people. I did not know I wanted to be a consultant when I was five, when I was 10, <laughs> or when I was 26. I just took that job because it was a job I could get. Right. Well, it's not a bad job to get. <laughs> I loved it in the end. <laughs> right. Exactly. You did write a book for millennials, which I think was inspired by your daughters, if I'm not mistaken. What is unique about that generation that that made you feel you had to, to reframe the message somewhat or even give a different message altogether? I think the world is so much harder today. And we parents and uh, leaders, managers at work are using the rubric that we grew up with and trying to fit it, retrofit it onto these people who are living in a far more global, complex, fast-moving, uncertain world in which they're unlikely to make it in the way that we made it. I mean, if you look back to, I'm a, a young baby boomer, but that time, we all believe we could do anything. And you could do it whenever you wanted. You went whenever you stopped taking illegal drugs. You could decide to go to back to school and become somebody. You could you could just make up the job in a lot of ways. People were creating their futures or believed that they could. That's really hard to do now, even though entrepreneurship is a very, very strong vector for today's young people. I felt that the challenges that they face. While they seem similar to the ones we face, they're so much greater. For example, the lack of passion. A lot mm -hmm. of people are in jobs that they really don't like and they turn around and they get laid off 
Mm-hmm. Uh, they would see their parents getting laid off and not being able to find work again. That's scary. Or what about working for not just a person you don't like, but a person who's a genuine bully or asshole? Bob Sutton, a professor at Stanford who I adore, wrote a book called The No Asshole Book. Did we all read it? We should have. It should have been required reading <laughs> for every corporate executive. That's not, that's not unique to millennials <laughs> or Gen Z, my kids, or Gen right. X, which is my Gen But Yeah, that's fair. But the, the number of assholes has multiplied in the world because jobs have multiplied over the last God knows years. And we none of us were trained in becoming great managers. And people are really not trained to become great leaders uh, other than in a few companies that are known for their training, McKinsey being one of them. I'm proud to have come through the McKinsey training and to have contributed to it. But uh, I think uh, young people, just imagine being 28 years old, put in charge of a task force that's global, that has 200 people on it who you've never met. And suddenly you have to figure out how to make this brand new thing project work and get all of these people to do what you want them to do. It's a really hard challenge. And I don't think I ever had to do anything like that at 28. I don't think many 28-year-olds do. It sounds like a dream job to some extent. But as you know, things have gotten maybe nasty, brutish, and short outside our walls and windows of our offices and our homes now, really, do you sense that, is it harder or is it actually easier to be a centered leader? One of the things that I'm finding is very helpful is it's bringing me back to take care of myself. I am a little bit sick and tired of the overused words self-care. They come from a place of genuine good intention, but I'm not talking about uh, sticking your feet into a bath of uh, cream or or whatever, you know, making marshmallows because they're also soft and cuddly. Although I have to admit that I have bought several pairs of slippers to wear around Mm -hmm. the house. (laughs) What I am thinking about is daily practice of setting intention, of practicing appreciation for the day, for yourself, of practicing gratitude, which sounds so hokey because we've seen it now all on greeting cards and all over the internet, but truly practicing uh, three good things every day. What is it about today that struck you, that Mm -hmm. made you glad to be alive, that makes you feel love and energy, uh, a presence? That I think is uh, very attuned to centered leadership, but there's another piece of centered leadership that's quite important. I've always been fond of connecting as one of the five capabilities because Mm -hmm. I struggled with it in many, many years of making truly meaningful connections with people who report to me, people I report to, my colleagues at work, my clients, and what I've seen through my recent research with leaders who happen to be Black or Latinx is that uh, the system fails to make connections with many, many people. And without those connections, it's hard to succeed. Because you're the only? Because you're not helped. We're all helped. Even Benjamin Franklin, who says, I tell you, I'm a self-made man. Uh, You know, his sister helped him. His parents helped him. All his friends helped him. Come on. He did not make it on his own. (laughs) Yeah. Never quite. And connection, and think about all of the people in your work life and in your life who are truly helping you in some way, even small. 
Today, I've broken every piece of electronics that I own, and it's very hard to do business without your PC, without a phone that works, etc. And there are dozens of people at McKinsey who I don't know who are helping me. Yes, it's their job, but they don't have to help me. They could go help somebody else, you know, in the hierarchy of who's really matters in this, in this world, but they're helping me and I'm grateful for it. And it makes me feel good to know that I'm being this supported. Uh, so that's what I mean by centered leadership practice. For somebody who travels around the world at almost a breakneck pace to have home time, I've seen it with celebrities, not to put you in the same camp as say the Kardashians, but nevertheless- God, no. <laughs> That's a very funny thought. <laughs> Whereas people like myself, who uh, I think perhaps is emblematic, at least part of the population, it's it feels isolating. It feels yeah, it's hard for people who do want to take on bigger leadership roles. It it seems in some ways more difficult to do it from your living room. Certainly when you've got kids, dogs, and everything else running about. What is the advice that you give to that group, myself included. <laughs> so, yeah. So there's this notion of, again, things don't need to be at the extremes. Mm -hmm. When you are this constrained situationally, be 5% braver in taking risk. You don't have to be 150% braver. Any movement is good because you'll be learning and growing. And if you've gotten to a point where you know you've stopped learning, you're in protection mode, which means that you're afraid. Mm -hmm. And the most important thing to do is to shift out of that into feeling safe and feeling that you have room to grow. So how do you do that? Is this a really tough advice? You welcome fear in. I was a person who lived with fear for most of my life, mostly self-imposed, I got to say. It's not that uh, I grew up in circumstances where you would say, yeah, I totally get it, Joanna. It was all inside my head. And until I learned, and part of centered leadership is calming yourself enough to get curious about your own fear. How does it serve you? And how does it limit you? Mm -hmm. And when you can see it in that way, that it was trying to help you, but it's served its time and it's now limiting you, then you have power to be able to move past it. And that's what you need to do or anyone needs to do who says, I feel isolated. I feel stuck. I feel like I could be doing more. I should be growing. I should be rising. I should be accomplishing. The far side of that is we are in a very weird time of the world right now. And so if you're not accomplishing as much as your life plan on paper says you should, well, maybe it's time to just put the life plan in the closet for a little bit and figure out how to have a better time every day. Begin to explore other parts of yourself and grow in other ways as well. Uh, for leaders, this is a very important time to learn how to listen. I mean, there is always a silver lining in any tragedy. Uh, I love this guy, David Kessler, who's a grief counselor. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, what he says is, in the middle of loss, somebody you love has passed away. The life you loved is no longer, and you probably never get it back. There is a lot of things to, to feel grief about. But all, with all of that, what David uh, writes and speaks about is that there will be meaning. When you're ready, 
you'll find meaning in the loss. The meaning will take a completely different shape than what you expect it to, but it's there to be found. And that makes things better. For someone to die senselessly, you can't find meaning in that. But to carry the spirit of that person on in the actions that you take, well, there's meaning in that. So Joanna, you've talked a lot about from the individual leader perspective, but how is this reshaping business? We're in a time of extraordinary change, and that changes risk reward a lot. So as companies face new realities, stark realities, creativity and innovation are needed at an all-time high. And so you see companies doing things that are extraordinary, and you see human beings coming together to do extraordinary things. So I'm on a public board of a company that got hit because it's a retailer. And so when you don't have stores open, you can't sell a lot of stuff, except if you really invested in e-commerce. And so their e-commerce sales went through the roof. It allowed them to see possibilities that they had not seen before. And that's a silver lining, if you would. Does it change the brutish, I think was your word, Diane, you know, brutish reality of uh, store closures? No, but it opens up a new avenue of opportunity. And there's lots of other things that will come to a company as a result of suddenly not being able to do business in the old way. I do think that another element which has its pluses and minuses is that the population has a louder voice uh, Mm -hmm. and they're using it. And the population's you know, outside your door. They're your employees. Uh, They're also your consumers. They are thinking through things themselves and behaving in new ways. And it behooves the company to figure out how to adapt. And the guys who do it faster are going to reap some reward from that. I see it in in the public marketplace. And I see it from the companies that I've been talking to. And a a wonderful uh, example would be Are you really providing the entertainment stuff that your consumers want to watch and digest? So a lot of entertainment companies, a lot of news companies who uh, were really undiverse at top levels, they've suddenly gotten new religion that, hey, we got to serve up what people want. And for us to know that, we need to have far greater diversity in our ranks than we have. Let's get that done now. Why wait? The worst thing to do is to cling to the old. Those companies who cling to old ways are going to lose out in the end. Yeah, And they should lose out if you think about it. Very true. Very true. I think I think the term I used was nasty, brutish, and short, which I think I cribbed from Hobbes from a philosophy class. <laughs> and that's what life is. So that's it. <laughs> All of which, Joanna, you are not. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for, for joining us. Um, I don't know if you have any other closing thoughts or, or advice. Uh, you know, I, uh, I think that uh, energizing uh, gets a short shrift. And I watched that, by the way, from 2004 to 2015, Centered Leadership Energizing is one of the five capabilities. People have let it go. You know, it was a badge of courage 
for you to be an executive who didn't sleep, who were on planes all the time, who worked to the point of burnout. Well, now people just sitting at home looking at Zoom are burning out. So got to be careful that what was good and true before may not be good and true now, Mm -hmm. just like flexibility. So get outside, get up, move around every hour, jump up and down, be silly, do something, but get your energy back. And there are four great ways to get it back. One is physical, and that's the one we all know about. And I'm not your mother, so I'm not going to tell you <laughs> what you already know. But you know, think about emotional energy when you feel isolated. You got to reach out to some people. Well, think about mental energy when you're stuck doing one kind of thing all day long. You got to learn something else that's interesting to you. And think also about spiritual energy, which I do think about a lot. And I get that from being in nature and from appreciation of beauty. So I don't know where you'll get it from. We're all different. (laughs) Very good (laughs) advice, Leon. Joanna, thank you very much for joining us. My pleasure. That was Joanna Barsh, Director Emeritus at McKinsey. And of course, the I guess, founder of Centered Leadership and somebody who continues to develop it, proselytize it, and think about it worldwide. I'm Diane Brady. If you'd like to see more, please do go to McKinsey.com. Otherwise, I will see you at the next show. You've been listening to the McKinsey Podcast. To learn more about McKinsey, our people, and our latest thinking, Visit us at mckinsey.com or find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook.